Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm here to tell you about our fantastic new election offer. Go to spectator.us slash election offer and subscribe to get three months free access to The Spectator US website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run-up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us slash election offer. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. I'm joined today by Marcus Roberts, who is head of international projects at YouGov, and we're going to be talking about the latest polls. Now, Marcus, I understand that YouGov have just had the latest batch of US polls in. What are they telling you? They're telling us that it looks um, like a Biden win is still the most likely result of all. In our MRP model, which takes into account lots of different sources of data, primarily driven by the battlegrounds polls, but also informed by national polling and other sources, we're seeing the following. Trump at 44%, Biden at 53%. If that was converted, our MRP is telling us it would result in an electoral college win of 356 EVs, electoral college votes to uh, Vice President Biden, and 182 to President Trump. If we look below those national numbers, uh, we see an interesting picture. We see Biden campaign four points ahead in Arizona, 50 to 46, three points ahead in Georgia, 50 to 47, three points ahead in Florida, 50 to 47, and just one point behind at 49 to 48 in both Ohio and Iowa. Two points ahead for Joe Biden in North Carolina, 50 to 48. So a close race in some of those stretch goal states for Vice President Biden, but a little bit more movement in some of the places which are absolutely necessary to a minimum win scenario of just making it over the 270 uh, line for Vice President Biden, thanks really to the high single-digit leads that we continue to show the Democrats posting in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania particularly. Well, let's talk a little bit about Georgia, because you've mentioned it a few times on these podcasts, and it seems to be the most unusual of the flips, I'd say. I mean, Arizona, people have been talking about it bluing, going Democrat for a while, but that's perhaps happening faster than people might think, according to your polls. But Georgia is the one that might surprise quite a few people. Yeah, that's right. I think that if Arizona resembles another state from previous cycles, I might say it was Virginia, where we saw Virginia go very quickly from being a red state, a Republican state, to a purple state, a battleground state, to a blue state, a democratic state. And it did that in the course of about three cycles, really, really fast, 12 years. Now, what we see in the case of Georgia might resemble something more like North Carolina, where it moves from being a red state into a purple state. And everyone is kind of surprised by the fact that it's doing that at all. But that indicates the fact that the Democrats in what we sometimes call the Sun Belt or the New South states, stretching across from Arizona all the way over to Georgia, represents a demographic and socioeconomic shift as well as a 
powerful ethnic minority base for the Democrats that allow them more success than was previously thought possible and faster success at that. And remember, Democrats were very bitterly disappointed in 2018 in the midterms when uh, their candidate, Stacey Abrams, very popular with the Democratic Party's grassroots, failed to win the governorship in that race. It might have been that 2018 was just a little too early for Georgia and 2020 might just be within reach for the Democrats. They took that result with their usual grace. I think it's fair to say. I think usual grace might be uh, uh, defended on the part of those who were uh, involved in some of the voter entanglement and voter suppression lawsuits afterwards with asterisk attached. Uh, but <laughs> your point is taken that Democrats really wanted to win that one and didn't. Yes. Well, let's go through. I mean, so I was someone did an interesting thing on the exactly where the polls were four years ago. And it's quite interesting that all of them at this stage had Clinton in most battleground states. In fact, I think in all the battleground states had Clinton further ahead than Biden is now. And then, of course, Trump won them. If you look at Pennsylvania, he's sort of on average by the RCP average. He's uh, Biden is 4.4 points ahead. Clinton was 5.7 at this stage. Florida, Biden 1.4, Clinton 3.8. Wisconsin, Biden 6.1, Clinton 6.8. So Wisconsin's an exception there. Again, Michigan, Biden 6.8, Clinton 8.8. North Carolina, Biden 2.7, Clinton 2.1. Arizona, Biden 3.1, Clinton 1.3. I won't bore listeners by going through the whole list, but it's just quite interesting. If the polls are as wrong as they were in 2016 then you're looking at a possible, even probable Trump win. But of course, we don't think the polls are as wrong. At least you don't, Marcus, right? Yeah, um, I'd I'd push back on that a little bit because depending on what averaging approach you take, um, you can end up with quite a different picture. And I'd really suggest that people follow on Twitter an independent political um, aggregator um, account called No Teams Indie, which is at N-O-T-E-A-M-S-I-N-D-Y. And what No Teams Indie has been doing throughout is comparing in detail every single one of the current polling results with what was being shown at this previous point in the cycle with regard to the Clinton-Trump race. Um, Mm. One of the problems with the RCP average is that it can include some bad polling, um, some really bad polling. For example, the Trafalgar Group, which is essentially a Trump front organization, pumping out extremely improbable positive numbers for the president, can get included in averages. That can cause a problem. Beyond that, also, I'd make the point that a big adjustment has been made. And listeners have heard me make this point before, but I'll make it again between the polling in 2016 and the polling in 2020. And that is that we now take into account education to a much greater extent in how we construct our polls. And this is called waiting for education. And what that means is we look at the composition of our polls and we ask ourselves simple, basic questions that we definitely should have been asking before, like to what extent is our sample comprised of college graduates or of non-college graduates? And this is really important work that was a groundbreaking contribution to the improvement of polls that YouGov's own chief scientist, Professor Doug Rivers, enacted and has really led the way in a lot of polling reforms. I'd say that that probably cost the Biden campaign in, or Democrats' performance in polls now anywhere from between two and four points. If you were to use the old methodology, that means 
you would be seeing from 2016 as applied to 2020, Biden leads of two to four points higher than you're currently seeing now. So what we're seeing may be in some cases smaller leads for Biden, but we're more confident that these numbers are more likely to be accurate. Or perhaps you've even overcorrected the other way. And if you were following 2016, it it might be a bigger lead for Biden and might be more accurate. Is that is that possible? That is absolutely possible. And I think like pollsters would hope to be forgiven for being a little more cautious and perhaps a little more small C conservative in their approach to 2020, given the mistakes as an industry at the battleground state level in 2016. But another big difference between 2016 and 2020 in the polling is that we just have a far larger quantity of high quality battleground state polling occurring more regularly. And that means that when we look at the picture of what's happening in a state like Wisconsin or a state like Florida, we're not having to wait 10 days between polls with a bunch of rubbish polls in the middle that pretty much need to be ignored before we get a more accurate picture of what's going on. The simple fact that there is more polling taking place from more high quality pollsters is somewhat reassuring, I think, to anyone who's taking an interest in the accuracy of these numbers. On that waiting for college education aspect that you mentioned, I'm sure you've had a lot of very, very intelligent people look at it. And so this may be a very stupid question to ask, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. No such thing as a stupid question, Freddie. There we go. Have you taken into account that while polling non-college educated people, you may well be polling quite a lot of people who are among the demographic of people that don't vote? That's not necessarily a snobbish thing to say. I think it's probably true that non-college educated people statistically do not vote as much as college educated people. Therefore, are you perhaps polling a lot of people who really have no intention of voting in the attempt to pick up these non-college educated Trump voters that you missed in 2016? Yes. So one of the things we do then is ask ourselves the sense check question of to what extent does this electorate look like the 2016 electorate? And one of the advantages that YouGov has as an internet panel is we don't need to ask voters to recall their past vote as a phone pollster would. We can check what was recorded by the voter themselves when they last conducted a YouGov survey four years ago or what was done on a lookalike basis when we're doing our modeling to see what voters of that kind had done previously. So by being able to sense check against past party voting intention, we're able to ensure that the picture doesn't look too radically different from what we're expecting, unless the data is overwhelmingly in favor of a dramatic shift, in which case we'll have to follow the data in terms of depicting a more radical result. And this comes back to one of the points that you were alluding to, I think, a moment ago about what if the battleground state polling is wrong. Because there's an interesting phenomenon going on in this election, which is a, a slight difference between the state of play in the battleground state polling and the state of play in the national polling. So mm. much of the national polling is now showing a double digit Biden lead. And yet the battleground state polling is more consistent with a race that is in the high single digits. Now, this could just be a small two-point noise error uh, and thus should be discounted. But it's been occurring for long enough that it means that I think when we, when we come as an industry to look at some of the mistakes, or rather the after-action report, I should say, of the polling, we're all going to be spending a lot of time wondering why was the national polling so optimistic why was the battleground state polling somewhat more pessimistic in terms of the Biden prediction? And what lessons can we learn from that? 
It may even be worth a side bet on the national polling telling a slightly better story this time, depending on, on whether or not uh, we as an industry have perhaps overcompensated in trying to take into account some of these factors that you were just mentioning. Could it be that um, the Trump campaign has just focused so much harder on those battleground states and therefore is more competitive? That definitely is a factor. If we look at how President Trump has spent his time and his money on Georgia, for instance, we begin to see the difference that effort and focus can make. Uh, Those Georgia numbers are somewhat closer than the national polling picture would indicate. Why is President Trump doing this? Well, Tegan Goddard at Political Wire had a good piece this week speculating that President Trump knows that he has to win Georgia or at least keep the result there so close on the night that it's not called for Vice President Biden because if he loses the state of Georgia, then he has no path to 270. And it doesn't matter what happens in other electoral contests, be they electoral or legal, if Georgia goes blue. And that's one of the reasons why if President Trump's strategy is indeed to cast enough doubt over the election that there's time for a legal challenge, there's time for a reconsideration of the result, even perhaps to the level of the Supreme Court, that would be necessary to keep the result close enough on the night. And that can't be the case if Georgia turns blue. And that may explain why President Trump and the campaign are spending so much time in Georgia, a state that Joe Biden definitely does not need to win to make 270. But if he does win, yeah, he's clearly sailing past 270. And it's going to be a surprisingly early night for all of us. A lot of conservative media, we've done a little bit on it it's on, on the Spectator's US website, are picking up on this fact that registrations for Republican voters are much higher than expected. What, what do you read into that? I think that's a really good canary in the coal mine reminder um, that this race is not settled and not done. And just because Joe Biden may have an 80% chance of winning, or let's say a 90% chance of winning, 10% and 20% occurrences do actually happen. One of the big lessons that we should all take from 2016 is the remembrance that low probability events do exist in reality, and that the 1 in 10 or, or even 1 in 20 chance will occur 1 in 10 or 1 in 20 times more or less. So what does that mean for this contest? It means that registration numbers in Florida, in which the Republicans are now outpacing Democrats to a a, a truly impressive level, shows the extent to which Florida, which as we've just talked about before, is is one of the keys to an early night with an early declaration one way or another, early if it is uh, to to Biden, I should say, makes it a more difficult reach for the Biden campaign than would have previously been the case. Now, the Biden campaign will be hoping that it can overcome that with its newfound support amongst white working class voters, where Joe Biden has been very successful in peeling off just enough of them in just enough of the right places in order to give his coalition, electoral coalition more ballast than was the case for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, but there's a problem if the Biden campaign hopes to win this election purely by early vote alone because if it ends up cannibalizing its election day vote to such an extent that all it's doing is generating the same voters it would always have just earlier through early vote, 
then it's not actually adding to its numbers. And there the Republican registration advantage, which represents an additional Republican influx, would probably allow them to win Florida in that situation. And that's why it's so important that the Biden campaign not just uh, cannibalize its, its election day vote by making its election day vote vote early, but also add to those numbers by converting registered Republicans, larger numbers of registered independents and new voters all together in order to counter that Republican registration advantage that we're beginning to see in Florida. That's very interesting on the Democrats and mail-in voting. And that might explain why I would say the Democratic messaging on getting out the vote has been somewhat bipolar in that there's been a lot of stuff about mail-in voting and how important it is and how, you know, Trump um, is evil in trying to get in the way of it. But there's also been a lot of stuff, uh, you sort of occasionally get these sort of, um, it seems like a memo has gone out and various Democratic congressmen or senators will will say it's always important to get out and vote on the day and, and that sort of thing. Is that because they're slightly panicking about the impact of mail-in voting on their ability to turn out the on-the-day vote? I think it is fair to say that the, the messaging has been split. Whilst there's been a structural strategic decision to pursue as much early voting as possible, there's also been these occasional more emotional pangs of worry as to what happens if all we do is cannibalize our election day vote. What happens if we don't have enough election day vote to uh, politically make the argument that, that Biden is going to win once all of the votes are counted? And also the worry that if the Democrats aren't genuinely adding new voters, but, but are just eating into their existing vote, they're not growing their coalition. They're just making themselves feel better about the situation that they find themselves in. Marcus, it's always fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us again. 